From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. With just a few weeks left in the census, we'll check in with the state demographer to find out how Colorado is doing with the count. Also, how one Western Slope college is working to stay ahead of COVID-19. Then, Idris Goodwin has big plans for the Colorado Springs art scene. There's something here, and there's a community here that loves it, and their voice is not really being heard, and their expressions are not resonating in the way that I think that they can, you know, internationally. A conversation with Goodwin, a poet, playwright, and the new director of the Fine Arts Center at Colorado College. Plus, we'll talk with the first woman to lead the Colorado National Guard. You can get a lot done if you have great relationships with people, if you build a good team. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. The 2020 census has entered its final stretch, and it's an understatement to say it's been a challenging process. A pandemic, widespread fires in the West, and a lack of trust in government have hindered efforts. The latest deadline gives data collectors three weeks to complete their work. Joining us to talk about where Colorado stands is state demographer Elizabeth Garner, which helps track the census. Elizabeth, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Now, this deadline for getting the census data collected, it's bounced around a lot. Originally, the census was supposed to wrap up in July. Then it was extended to the end of October due to the complications stemming from the pandemic. Then that was rolled back to the end of this month. Now that deadline for collecting data is caught up in courts. What's being challenged? What I think people are looking at is that this change in the schedule from October to the end of October to the end of September really caught off guard a lot of people, especially out in the field. The folks out in the field right now are working on a program called non-response follow-up. So they're going door to door for housing units that have not responded to the census yet. And so when you put a plan in place and you say, okay, I've got you know so many days to get this done, you hire for that number, you plan for that number, and then all of a sudden they change the rules on you, you're like, okay, how do I get that done? And I think it really makes a big difference for Colorado and uh, for other states as well. But there's large share of Colorado that has only had about 55% of the non-response follow-up completed as of today. And so there's a lot of work yet to be done in the state And I think that's what people are concerned about. And it's not just Colorado. It is across the country where people are very concerned. And it's especially like a state like California that has had, like you had mentioned, so many wildfires and other issues going on that it's so important to allow this once in a decade process to finish. So it sounds like a lot could ride on the outcome of that lawsuit. So let's talk about where the results are in Colorado right now. Um, Overall, about 69% of Coloradans have responded to the census by now. Many did so online or by mail. For those who haven't been counted, door knocking started about a month ago. How much did the in-person effort help to boost the numbers? Huge, huge impact. Um, As of yesterday, it increased the response rate up to 20, uh, an additional 20%. So now we're at 89.4 for the state. So that is a significant increase. And it's both uh, what it ends up doing is not only counting people that weren't counted, so they're physically doing it for you, 
but it also, they put reminders out on your door. Like if you weren't home when they knocked, they put a reminder there. And then a lot of people responded to that as well. And how does the response rate in Colorado compare to, say, 10 years ago or even other parts of the country this year? So our self-response rate actually was higher than last decade. So our official, as of today, our self-response rate is 68.7. And last decade, we were 67.2 at the finale. So we've increased at the state as a whole. We have increased our self-response rate. But if we look then by counties and municipalities, there are about 24 counties and 77 municipalities above that 2010 rate. Um, But that leaves actually majority of our counties and municipalities below that 2010 rate. And we rank uh, 15th in the country for for the self-response rate. And now for total enumeration, we rank 29th. So we, again, we need that extra time because we're still not at that completion rate. So that self-response rate, it's pretty uneven across the state. This is the first time that people have been able to respond to the census online. How has that factored into the self-response rate? You know, I think it's been really helpful, um, especially for people that that was an easy thing to do. So our internet self-response rate was about 60%. So that was, you know, pretty good. Um, And it hit most of the state. How about most of the state where the people live? It was very well covered by that self-response. But then there's a large part of the state that doesn't have reliable internet. And so those areas were really needing the paper forms to come in or the phone answers to come in. And then on top of that, we're dealing with a pandemic. How does that affect data collection? Oh, it's huge, as you can imagine. Again, you have this huge plan and beast. We've been working on it for the last three years. And then you throw COVID on top right when people were supposed to be going out into the field and counting group quarters. So like uh, prisons, universities, nursing homes, and all of those had to come to a halt for three months. And you build all of this excitement and all of this energy for April 1st. And, you know, you could start responding a little bit before April, but that was the exciting time. And then everything shuts down mid-March. So it did impact things greatly. Also trying to hire enumerators has been a challenge because of COVID. Uh, A lot of people had planned, all right, I'm going to do this for the summer, but now it's like this time of year that they're looking for the census enumerators. Also, there's a lot of people that potentially had health risks that had applied to be census workers that now aren't because of fear of COVID. So it's a huge challenge, I think, for everyone. We should say enumerators, those are the folks going out knocking on doors who work for the census. Now, Colorado has possible eighth congressional seat at stake when it comes to the count. How confident are you that Colorado will get an accurate count given the current shortened deadline and the obstacles that it's facing? So I think we're concerned, um, but I wouldn't say highly concerned, but I need to knock on wood and, and not jinx myself. I think we reached that threshold because um, it's all relative growth compared to other states. I think we reached that point probably back in 2018. So 
I think just our additional growth from 19 and 20 is a little bit of icing on top. So I, I feel fairly secure that we're going to get that eighth congressional seat. But again, it really matters that we count everyone. And so you know, we still have a lot of work to do, for example, in the big cities of Denver and Aurora, where it's going to be really important to make sure that everyone is counted. And do you have any indication right now what populations or communities in Colorado could be undercounted? You know, the the most likely areas for undercounting are where you have high occupancy in a unit. So, um, you know, like more than four people because they tend to undercount. Uh, there's fear of, oh, am I over my um, allowed limit of people in the house? So that will come up areas that have a lot of renters because there's a lot of mobility and certainly where you were in April is different than where you are now. And so I think that there's a large, a, a, a huge possibility that those units that were populated in April are not populated right now when they're doing non-response follow-up and we may be missing a lot of renters that have moved since then. Likewise, you tend to have an undercount of a foreign-born population or people with limited English just because there's uh, not an understanding of what the census is necessarily for. So any area of the state with uh, larger populations of renters, foreign-born, limited English speakers tend to be undercounted. And I understand that you can't do data modeling to estimate the number of people who aren't counted. Is there a way the census can estimate the numbers when people don't respond? So there are a couple of ways that they work on this. One, they do use some administrative records. Uh, So, you know, let's say um, I've applied for different federal programs they might be able to do a little bit of work saying, all right, you know, Elizabeth applied for this program. Uh, We have her mailing address is this. Currently, there's no response at this housing unit. So we know that Elizabeth is there. So we're going to give one one person to that housing unit. Um, They'll also do a little bit of work uh, with neighbors. So for example, if I don't respond and I keep not responding, they may knock at my neighbor's door and say, hey, does anybody live next door? How many people live there? And they'll then just a limited census marking down how many people that my neighbor might say. The last piece that they'll use is called imputation. And it is basically using the statistics of that block or of those neighbors and apply that to that unit. So it's not modeling. it's called imputation because it's just basically using those same characteristics from similar housing units in that same block. Well, Elizabeth, I want to thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Elizabeth Garner is the demographer for the state of Colorado. Her office, among other things, helps track the census. We've been talking about the final stretch in the efforts to count Coloradans. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Because of community support, Colorado Public Radio has scaled up its operations, delivering trustworthy information and music to audiences throughout the state on multiple easy-to-access platforms, with spaces for us all to share and embrace stories of hope, resilience, creativity, and joy. What CPR brings to your life is only possible because of financial support from the community. Many giving as Evergreen members, donating what feels affordable on a monthly basis. Add your support at CPR.org.
Colleges and universities across the country are wrestling with how to bring students and faculty back to campus safely. Some have quarantined entire dormitories and even closed campuses after outbreaks of the virus. Colorado Mesa University in Grand Junction hopes its testing and social distancing regimen will keep everyone on campus healthy and in class in person. Tim Foster is the president of Colorado Mesa University. Hi, Tim. Good morning, Avery. Amy Bronson directs the Physician Assistant Program at CMU and helps lead the school's COVID-19 safety plan. Welcome, Amy. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Tim, can you take us back to the early stages of the pandemic last spring when you really started to think about how you were going to respond? What were those conversations like? Avery, I don't think I want to go back to that point in time, but, um, you know, we had just come out of of spring break and obviously didn't come out of spring break. And so everybody went online and then we actually surveyed our students to ask them, so how, how, how did that go? Fully expecting the answer we got, which was, well, you did the best you could, but it was not great. Um, and I think you saw that across the country. And then we followed it up with, you know, it does appear pretty certain that this is going to be with us in the fall and maybe into next spring. And so what do you think? If we really raise our game, online would be a good option. And the overwhelming response we got from our students was a, a no. Um, it really doesn't matter how good you are at online. We want face-to-face. Um, we really value that. And then you have to appreciate for us, we're two-thirds of our student body is either low-income and or first-generation. And so, again, if you look at national statistics studies and things that we know, that's a group that's also going to be probably most poorly served by trying to attend online. And so we kind of took a deep breath. We were in the process of doing a lot of scenario planning and what if this and what if that. Um, Thankfully, Amy was part of that process. And so she and John Marshall um, kind of raised their hands and said, hey, we'd be willing to to help and uh, lead this effort. And so we quickly decided, all right, you know what? We're going to come back. We're going to be in person, and we just need to figure out how to make that happen. So you really took that feedback to heart. You have about 8,000 students on campus right now. Some have opted to go online instead. If a student isn't willing to follow the school's strict protocol around COVID, their only option was online, right, Amy? In light of that, the residence halls, they're nearly full, but give us a sense of what students need to follow. Yeah, really great question. You know, when we thought about bringing students back together, you know, we knew that we are going to have to put safety protocols in place. But in order for everyone to stack hands and be willing to do that, we knew we needed the Maverick spirit and the ability for students to have a culture of social responsibility and their ability to understand that in order to be here, they were going to have to row the boat with us um, to keep us socially safe. And so we put together a COVID-101 course that we rolled out that all students had to take before they came back to campus. And that not only sort of put out the safety protocols that we are going to have on campus, but it really created the culture around what it's going to take for us to stay here together again. And I do think it's that maverick spirit and that cultural of student buy-in of saying, we are going to be able to do this, the social distancing, um, the making sure that we're cleaning our classroom protocols, that we're doing the safety checks with wellness um, is also really important. So I think those were sort of the pivotal pieces that coming back to campus, students knew coming in what they are going to be able to expect when they came back. And what about faculty? What are their options? 
Well, we're trying to <laughs> we're nodding at each other. Sorry to be a little slow. So, faculty, um, we laid out for faculty. You know, if you are at risk, either because of a health condition or age, uh, you may certainly opt uh, to go ahead and go online. Um, and I will say that our faculty are, you know, they're here for a reason. Um, we have small class sizes and and really value that interaction. And so faculty have answered the the bell, so to speak. Um, clearly, uh, you know, as sort of as we all came out of isolation and coming back into the office and, you know, there was a little bit of nervousness. Um, and so I think we had that standard sort of same thing. But when you looked at, you know, the the just host of things that we're doing from wipes in every classroom and everybody wipes down when they come in and everybody wipes down when they come out. And we have thermal imaging machines and and our testing regimen and, 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 you know, we've turned up the air exchange in all of our buildings so that they're functioning at a turnover rate like you'd see in a hospital. Um, just, it is literally dozens, if not hundreds of things that we've done. I think that began to give faculty and staff some comfort. And then I would, communication was critical. And uh, Amy and I spent our, our summer vacation doing talk radio. You know, we did the um, Facebook Lives, and we did um, the, the uh, auto-dial calls where you have everybody um, on a call, and then we walk through these protocols and, and then quickly turn to allowing people to ask questions. And so they'd ask questions and ask questions, and sometimes they'd ask the same question as you can appreciate like three or four times in one evening, but it really began to drive home. We're, we're doing this, we're doing that. And, and I think that really raised student, faculty, staff, parents, comfort level. And most importantly, was the precursor to this culture thing. And, and I, you can't emphasize that enough. You walk around campus and our 99% of our students, 100% of the students on campus, they've got their masks on. They're looking into the thermal imaging machines. They're wiping down their spaces. We have a little green screen that they show to say that they're symptom-free. I mean, they are just really understanding this is what it's going to take for us to be here and for us to stay here. And I and we want to be here and we want to stay here. And I don't want to be the person that sends us home. So it sounds like disseminating good information is important. So is sur- giving good surveillance of symptoms. Amy, CMU's COVID plan, it's called Safe Together, Strong Together. And one of the things that it did was a bit controversial. And every person was tested before coming onto campus to start the year. Some schools have opted not to require that measure. Why did you feel that was necessary? And I wonder if it's presented any pitfalls. Yeah, really great question. And I would say our baseline testing um, has really hinged on the success of our ability to be back on campus together. You know, when we looked at sort of testing strategies and, and, and really looked at this population and age, we knew a lot of folks in this age and population were asymptomatic carriers. Um, and so knowing that, um, we also wanted to make sure when we are entering into um, our what we call our family units or our Mavelies, which are our Maverick or our logo um, with our family units on campus. So bringing people back to into these new families. So they're leaving their own household and coming into their new household for the for the fall semester. We really wanted to make sure that we had a baseline understanding of what COVID looked like on campus, really understanding that landscape. And we were able to ferret out in that baseline testing, you know, a 
a, a fair amount of folks that would have come to campus um, that were COVID positive. They were asymptomatic, but they potentially could have brought that and benignitis for that on campus. So being able to screen that out, having them isolate or quarantine prior to coming to our campus was a really important and pivotal point um, of our testing strategy. And that's just one metric. You know, we look at testing as, as, as being a part of our safety protocols, but it's really just one metric that we are utilizing to be able to continue to look at that landscape across campus. So you have that social distancing piece, the mavelies and a lot of wiping down of surfaces, but then you've also invested in a lot of technology. You mentioned the mobile symptom trackers, then there's even facial recognition on those thermal, um, the things that take your temperature around campus, genomic testing. Tell me about how students and faculty have responded to that, Tim, and why you've decided to invest in so much technology. You know, it was, and and I and I have to say that part of us coming and being able to do this is we have this amazing group of healthcare professionals in, in the Grand Valley. Okay, and so we have two large hospitals that, as we speak, have three coronavirus uh, patients there, but we also have Mesa County Health, who has who have epidemiologists, infectious disease folks, and then we've been able to borrow uh, people from St. Mary's from Community Hospital. We partnered up with the Piton Foundation. I mean, it is just like literally this army of expertise helping us say, what do you need to do? And it's how do you track symptoms? How do you get real data in real time? And so, you know, we have just been active um, looking and reading and and coming up with different ideas. And some of them, um, in retrospect, probably aren't going to be the greatest investments, Um but uh, nonetheless, they're they're a piece of it, and they're going to help us identify folks. And so you, you mentioned the thermal imaging cameras, for example. <clears throat> and so I have a, a symptom tracker every morning. I'll take my phone out, and I answer no, 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 and it gives me a green screen. If I put my face into one of our thermal imaging cameras because it has facial recognition and I have a temperature, it will automatically turn that screen red, um, and it will notify our symptom tractors, I have a symptom. And so then they can reach out to us and say, okay, what's going on? Do we need to get you in, get you tested? So it is, it's it's people, it's technology, and it's just really just working overtime to try and stay on top of all of this. But I just can't say enough about everything we do, we take to this panel of experts and say, here's how we want to operate our swimming pool, for example. This you almost, know, and does this <laughs> oh, make sense? And then they say, uh, maybe not. And we, oh, shoot. Okay, back to the drawing board. Well, this all sounds very expensive. In the about 30 seconds we have left, it, have you sought extra resources for all of this? Uh, and that's, it's a funny question because, yeah, it's a funny question because there are certain, you know, there's always a a, uh, a naysayer out there, right? And so every now and then you get a person saying, oh, you guys are coming back. You don't care about people. You just come back for the money. And, it's, and I want to say to them, actually, the business model says put everybody online, hang out, and we would do better because we're spending this semester in excess of $5 million mm. across all of these various things. And we've repurposed people whose jobs don't exist right now. You know, we don't have a lot of fall sports. And so we have coaches and trainers. And, and so we have people um, doing all of these things tasks with, and not doing their, their base job. And so, yeah, it's, uh, 
it's an expenditure, and it's not one that, that anybody's helping us cover. The federal money really is geared for students, and yeah. that's where we want to focus it in terms of how do we help them. We're going to have to wrap up there. Tim, oh. thank you so much for joining us, and you as well, Amy. Tim Foster is the president of Colorado Mesa University. Amy Bronson directs the Physician's Assistance Program at CMU and leads the school's COVID-19 safety plan. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. CPR News wants to help voters set the agenda in this election year. I'm News Director Rachel Estabrook, and we're shaping our coverage of the 2020 election with your help. What do you want candidates to address as they compete for your vote? And how has the pandemic changed or solidified your political opinions? Fill out a short survey online about what matters to you this election year. Find the survey at CPR.org slash Colorado 2020. When artist Idris Goodwin isn't performing breakbeat poetry like this. I always thought the name came out of a book. My mother still has it. It's crude and it's orange and it says African names. Now inside African names, it says something like Idris means immortal. But I don't think that's right. My mother's name is Patricia. My father's name is Donald. Their parents are named Thelma, James, Ruth, and also James. And when he's not writing critically acclaimed plays like Hype Man, which is currently being produced in Aurora by the Black Actors Guild, he's running the Colorado Springs Fine Arts Center. He took over the organization's new as the organization's new director earlier this year, and he has big plans for the city's art scene. Idris, welcome to the program. Hi. What does growth look like for you in the Colorado Springs art scene? Um, you know, when I lived, I lived in Colorado Springs for about six years, and then I moved away for two years, and then I came back. During that six years that I lived there, you know, I was very surprised and impressed by, um, you know, the, the amount of different creative um, communities that existed, you know, different galleries, different bands, music rooms, things like that. But, you know, I felt like what there was an opportunity for was more cohesion and more growth, more support. And really, for the reason to tell its story, I felt like it was it was not getting out broadly enough. And I remember I brought a really kind of well-known spoken word artist named Andrea Gibson, who lives in Boulder. I brought her to the Springs to do an event um, with Colorado College. And it was a huge turnout. And she said on the mic, oh, man, I'm living in the wrong city. I mean, no shots against Boulder, and I don't want to put her on blast like that. <laughs> but um, but I think that that, was, that really stuck with me because there's something here, and there's a community here that loves it, and that their voice is not really being heard and their expressions are not um, resonating in the way that I think that they can, you know, internationally. And I think that um, the Fine Arts Center, because of its history and because of its presence and because of its size, has that potential to kind of be, you know, the the sort of hub of that, to be the the platform or the amplifier of all the different arts voices uh, in our region, but also that of the arts patrons and arts lovers and all of that. So to me, it just, it's going to just take just more support and but amplification, you know, and really like outward facing amplification, telling its story and doing it consistently. And what is that story of the Colorado Springs art scene that you want to tell? 
I mean, that's that is yet to be written. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> I mean, I don't. I, I think that there are. I think that there are histories here, right? Like, so the Colorado Springs Fire Center has a history, and you know, Boca uh, has a history. Madbo has a history. You know, they everyone, you know, individually and collectively, all have a history that you know. I just don't think people know about. You know, I think. You know, I, 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 I'm out in the world quite a bit. And for the six years I lived in Colorado Springs, everyone was like, what's that like? Or they thought it was just focus on the family. You know, they didn't. And when I said arts, you know, that there was a theater scene and a visual arts scene and artists like Floyd Thompson living here, they were, they just were like the bug eyed, you know, because people just think Colorado was like skiing and marijuana, you know what I mean? Or if they do think of art, they think it's just like horse paintings and mountain paintings, which, you know, no shots against, you know, all my horse painters out there, but <laughs> there's a lot more going on too. So that's what I'm saying is like, individuals like smaller pockets and communities know but i think the region itself is not really even fully aware i mean even denver folks and Boulder folks you know don't really know what we got going on in the springs and as you're working to get those stories out how has the pandemic complicated that vision you know this this pandemic i think has forced everyone just to take a pause to brace themselves for impact <laughs> You know, we were in the midst of an exhibition and a new play, and we had to halt both of those. You know, everyone's trying to figure out the best way forward and the, and the most responsible way to do it in terms of health, but also financial. I mean, it's a it's a major financial hit, and you know, a lot of you know some of our our, our fellow museums and, and, and theaters have you know kind of resumed production in some other way. But it's come at an extreme cost, and we're still trying to navigate and find a comfortable balance between all that. The good news is that we pivoted immediately into the digital space and began creating digital platforms to support artists. And so we created a program, an initiative called the Three by Three Projects, and we funded um, artists from all across Colorado and New Mexico to collaborate virtually, you know, across disciplines. And so there have been some really amazing. And, and creative and, and exciting um, collaborations um, that are available on our site. And that has been opening us to a new audience as well, beyond Colorado Springs and, you know, and getting kind of our name out there and our brand out there. Because I think that, you know, the Fine Arts Center, of course, is a destination, but it, it's also a brand. It can also be more than just the location as well. There's nothing in our mission that says anything about an address. You know, we have to continue that work, but also try to do it safely and fiscally responsibly. Yeah, so there's a lot to consider in your role as the director of the Fine Arts Center and the weight of all the changes on the arts community. But then you're also an artist. Have you found it difficult to create during quarantine? No, quite the opposite. <laughs> um, no, because to me, you know, listen, my, my roots and my background are in hip-hop arts, right, hip-hop aesthetics, which, you know, requires you to make with whatever tools that you have. So a, a boombox, you know, is now your instrument. You know what I'm saying? A pen and paper is now your instrument, you know, and I've, that's carried me throughout my whole life. So, no, I haven't found it any more or less difficult than before because as far as I'm concerned, the job of the writer is to talk about the human condition. And if the human condition is we're in a pandemic and a social uprising, then that's what we got to make the art about. You know, if we're in a, a situation where everything is wonderful and we're all like on gondolas and we're, you know, playing flutes, then I will write uh, and create art about that, you know. Uh, but to me, 
I, I consider myself in a, in, a, in a very specific cohort of artists who just kept it moving. You know, you just keep it moving. It's a life. It's a lifestyle. You know, this is not like a practice or a hobby or something I do on the side. This is like who I am. You know. And like you say, we're in the middle of a pandemic, in the middle of a national reckoning with racism. How is that showing up in your breakbeat poetry? And maybe you should explain for just us just briefly, what is breakbeat poetry? And really all it is is it just acknowledges the generation of poets who came up in the era of hip-hop and hip-hop's influence on, you know, on letters, you know? So whether that be, you know, and these are people who are not interested necessarily in necessarily solely being rappers. These are, these are people who also love Yates and, and Gwendolyn Brooks and, you know, Langston Hughes, right? you know, like straight up poets who publish books, right? But, you know, also were influenced by the way that 50 Cent and Eminem put language together. And so breakbeat poetry just sort of acknowledges that, um, that, that part of the DNA. And also, you know, for me, you know, for me, breakbeat poetry, I'm very interested in the, in the music, the orality of the language. Like, you know, I'm a, I like to perform. That's how I prefer my poetry to be experienced. Um, so that's what breakbeat poetry is, essentially. And then how is everything that we're dealing with from social turmoil to the pandemic, is that all showing up in the poetry you've been writing during quarantine? So both my poetry and my plays for years have been engaged in conversations about America's failure to reconcile its crimes against uh, people of color, right? Specifically black people. Um, so if you, you know, I have a play right now running in Aurora called Hype Man. It's being produced at the People's Building by uh, Black Actors Guild. I wrote that play in like 2015, you know, um, in the wake of Mike Brown, you know. And so the play is running now and some of the critics are like, you know, unfortunately this play is timely, but it wasn't, it was written years ago, you know. So um, if you look back through my whole lineage, I mean, my, 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 my whole trajectory of, of plays and, and, uh, and poetry have been saying Black Lives Matter, you know, because that, because that, that expression, those three words are probably just the more modern word, the modern variation of say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud, or, you know, you know, black folks in this country have been trying to, you know, express their desire to liberty and the pursuit of happiness from Alex, you know, Alice Childress, right? W.B. Du Bois, his Booker T. Washington. So I'm in that tradition. And so my job as a writer is to tell the story that's in front of me and the story that lives in my DNA. And so that's my job. And so that's what I've been doing. And that's what I'll continue to do even when it's over. And again, if we reach some moment where racism, you know, goes on television and publicly says, all right, y'all, I've had a good run, I'm out, right? <laughs> then I will happily write plays about us all skipping down the street and holding hands and feeding each other popsicles, right? But in, until then, I got I to gotta tell these kind of stories, you know? Does it bother you that it is still relevant five years after you wrote it, this play Hype Man, it's an anti-racist play? Of course. Um, oh, of course it does. Of course it does. Absolutely. Without question. Yeah. You have a whole series of free plays running this summer to talk to kids about anti-racism. Yeah. Tell me about those. Yeah. So I, uh, so when the pandemic first started, I started writing these like short plays and me and my family would read them. And it was really fun. And it kind of, to me, harkened back to the days of people, you know, gathering around a piano, you know, in their house and like, you know, reading 
you know, shape notes in, in um, and so this kind of accessible type of script writing, which is like, I'm writing something, but I want you all to just do it, like print it out and just do it however you want to do it. And so I had already been kind of in that practice. And so then when, you know, we have the hits one after another of Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, I just immediately felt compelled to create work that families could sit around and, and read together, but hopefully it would spark some conversation. My son this summer um, just turned eight and in, you know, all through our neighborhood, there were Black Lives Matter signs in, in lawns all through our neighborhood. And my son began to ask, you know, what, what does that mean? And, you know, he was seeing imagery of these protests and, you know, he was like, what, what's going on? Like, why are these, you know, why are people protesting what does Black Lives Matter mean? And so, you know, I was like, we can't be the only ones having this conversation right now. And so I wanted to write, you know, just write, use, use the arts, use drama as one possible uh, platform to begin that conversation. I think the intimacy of that is just beautiful, that it's a family sitting around reading, that is the actors, that is also the audience. Um, and then yeah, I... exactly. That came out in June, and we actually just put them out. Um, four of them got translated into Spanish. So those just came out like days ago. What a beautiful tool to help families have those conversations. Well, Idris, thank you so much for joining us. Sure. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Idris Goodwin is the new director of the Colorado Springs Fine Arts Center at Colorado College. His critically acclaimed play Hype Man is performed all over the country and is currently being put on by the Black Actors Guild in Aurora. The show wraps up this weekend. One final note, Colorado College is KRCC's licensee, which is part of CPR News. For the first time in its history, a woman is the head of the Colorado National Guard. Brigadier General Laura Clellan is also openly part of the LGBTQ community. She enters the job during a pandemic as wildfires burn across the state. The Guard has been playing an active role, both testing the public for COVID-19 and fighting the fires. She told CPR's Andrea Dukakis that the National Guard, which operates at the behest of the governor, is a diverse group of citizen soldiers. They may serve as infantrymen or military police or aviators on the weekend, but they also have civilian jobs as well. So we have, you know, school teachers, lawyers, mechanics, you name it. We have everyone in our formation. You know, we have military police that can help with security, which we're doing right now up in the Cameron Peak Fire. So to a certain degree, we are a jack of all trades, but we're also very specialized as far as what our units and soldiers and airmen can do. Historically, what would you say has been the most challenging crisis the state National Guard has faced so far? You know, I think that the COVID response has been a very unique challenge for us because it's been so long, 173 days and still counting as far as an operational response is unheard of in our 160-year history. So I would have to say that this COVID response has been pretty unprecedented. And you mentioned the fires. Uh, they've hit several parts of the state very hard this year, this season. What other roles have you played in fighting the fires? We also have a, a helicopter in our high-altitude training site in Gypsum, and that's a Black Hawk, and it's sitting there ready to respond for medical evacuation assistance if needed. 
During your 25 years of service, over 25 years, you were deployed twice in combat and three times on operational missions. What did you learn on those trips that you can apply to your current role? Well, you know, I I have learned so much, but usually it's from other people, right? And building relations, whether it's with my own team or whether it's building relationships with other armies from other countries. What I learned on those deployments is that you can get a lot done if you have great relationships with people, if you build a good team. And every time I've deployed, I've been blessed with the team members that I've deployed with. And I'll just say that, you know, I wouldn't be here had I not had great teams and successful deployments. And have you learned, you know, the keys to forming those relationships? What have you learned about interpersonal relationships? Because you certainly have to work with many people in this job. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think it's really important to listen more than you talk. And that goes no matter what position you're in or where you work. You can learn a lot by just listening and listening with empathy and understanding where other people are coming from. And I think the other thing about, you know, building teams is you have to truly understand what each individual brings to the table as far as their unique diversity and their skill sets, and then leverage that as a team. I think, you know, the more we can really focus on building true inclusion across organizations, I think the better off we'll be as an organization and, and even as a society. As the first woman and openly LGBTQ person to serve in this position, what's one example of a change you would like to make? Well, you know, I'm assessing that right now. We have a group that's really focused on how we can look at our systems and our processes through a lens of inclusion. So I'm I'm not looking to make changes. I'm looking to make improvements. The U.S. Army right now has a great project. It's called Project Inclusion, where they're stripping uh, names and pictures from promotion boards. When you look at a promotion board, you, you look at a packet and what they're doing to address any kind of implicit bias is they're going to take names and pictures out of that process. So when you're looking at a packet, you'll truly be looking at a packet without a name or a picture, so you won't know the gender or race or anything else of of the person that you're looking at. And I think it's just one example of where you know, we can really start to address biases and, you know, things that get in the way, intentionally or not, of ensuring that we have diverse populations that have truly equal chances at every opportunity and and every level in the organization. And I wonder, because you're part of the LGBTQ community, do you ever feel an added pressure to prioritize some of these issues And if so, how do you feel about that kind of pressure? You know, my hope is that LGBTQ people uh, are valued and respected for who they are and for their contributions. Um, We have to find ways to eliminate anything that threatens our culture and our values. And I truly believe that you have to be deliberate when you set the culture of an organization. And we're going to work together to ensure that everyone has a path for achieving their goals, regardless of their sexual orientation. You know, I think the National Guard is talked about a lot, but I'm not sure many people know 
how much you do and how many different duties you perform. Is there any effort to try to get the word out about that? Yes, absolutely. You know, we are members of the community. The majority of our Guard members are citizen soldiers. They're part-time. They perform their training and their readiness requirements on the weekends and you know, two weeks a year. But truly, we are part of the community, and many folks have, many of our service members have full-time jobs outside of the National Guard. And I think, you know, from my own experience being a, a part-time soldier, a lot of people don't understand truly what the Guard does, and they're surprised frequently that we're overseas and we're supporting the active duty. You know, the Guard is critical to support the active duty and to help our national defense strategy. So we're actively involved in deploying overseas. We are actively involved in helping our state during emergencies such as COVID. I think many of us heard about the National Guard back when some were being deployed multiple times overseas to assist in war duty um, in places like uh, Afghanistan and Iraq. What kind of pressure has that put on the National Guard, particularly when there are multiple deployments for um, a member? You know, for the last 15 years plus, we have been operational in support of the National Defense Strategy. And, you know, I think the active duty uh, now realizes that, you know, we are an integral part to that mission. I would say that most of our units deploy maybe every four to five years, some more, some less, depending on the needs of the combatant commands. I think it puts the pressure right on the families and employers. And that's why the family and employers and employer support to the Guard are so important and so critical to, you know, our service members who continually, you know, deploy or continually choose to serve. Um, We can't serve without that support network. General Clellan, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Andrea. It was my pleasure. Brigadier General Laura Clellan is the new head of the Colorado National Guard. She's also the first woman to hold the job. She spoke with my colleague, Andrea Dukakis. There's concern around the country about a national poll worker shortage that could hamper voting this fall and delay election results in key states. But CPR's Binta Berkland found Colorado is grappling with a different and much more welcome situation, a poll worker surge. After seeing news stories about states scrambling to recruit and keep older poll workers in the middle of a pandemic, Andre Miller decided he wanted to do his part. The 27-year-old lives in Denver and is working from home. I'm at lower risk of developing COVID complications, and I expect that I'll have some extra time this fall, and I thought it'd be a I could be helpful this election at the polls. So he signed up to be an election judge in Denver, also known as a poll worker. In Denver, it pays anywhere from $13 to $17 an hour, and the city tries to balance its judges equally, Republican, Democrat, and unaffiliated. The teams of bipartisan citizens check signatures on ballots, receive and pick up ballots from drop boxes, and run vote centers. I've worked elections since 2000. I've never seen an interest this high this early 
for an election, especially a presidential. That's Elizabeth Littlepage, the election judge coordinator for Denver. She says right now there are way more people interested than spaces available. It's a stark difference from the last presidential election. She said Denver had to hire 40 temporary workers at the last minute to meet its needs. Part of the problem is that being an election judge isn't an easy commitment for people with a full-time job. Because it's not just one day here in Colorado. We expect people to work a minimum of two days. We have jobs that have already started. Little Page says they saw a huge increase in applications after the Daily Show host, Trevor Noah, made a pitch to his younger audience to sign up. His video has more than two and a half million views. Fewer poll workers means fewer polling stations are going to be open, and it means longer lines that not everybody can afford to stay and wait in, especially people of color in working-class areas. The Colorado County Clerks Association says there's an uptick across the state, even in small rural counties. Colorado is in a better situation than many states because most people fill out their mail ballot instead of voting in person, so fewer poll workers are needed. Earlier this summer, Avi Stopper co-founded the national group The Poll Hero Project to recruit high school and college students. We're seeing a lot of need, particularly from large metropolises. Large cities like Philadelphia typically need about 8,500 poll workers in Philly, and they have about 2,500. So there are really acute needs, which is not to say that there aren't needs across the country. There are. It's just the level of concentration is really intense in some of the bigger cities. 17-year-old high school student Georgia Cargyle signed up after she saw her friend posting about the Poll Hero Project on Instagram. And she was motivated by the pandemic and the desire to keep older people safe. My grandpa, who's 78 or something, He lives in Alabama, and he had COVID and was in the hospital for over 50 days. And my basketball coach also had coronavirus and was on a ventilator for over 40 days. Cargill says even though she can't vote yet, this election is incredibly important to her, and it's worth her time to help make it go smoothly. It's going to be a really long day on November 3rd, but I would rather be the one out there and I would rather me be exposed than an older person who could have a lot more issues if they were to get coronavirus. The county clerks say they appreciate so much enthusiasm, but they warn not everyone who applies to help this election will get slots. I'm Benta Berkland, CPR News. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Avery Lill. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.